0: Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, onto the pod. Terry is going to come and read the scripture for us from Matthew 18:15 to 22.
1: Thank you. Good morning. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about my any matter any matter that you pray for it will be done for you by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered together in my name I am there among them then peter approached him and asked lord how many times shall i forgive my brother or sister who sins against me as many as 7 times i tell you not as many as 7 Jesus replied, "But seventy times 7. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. God, thanks, Terry. So, if you've been around
0: the church for any amount of time at all, you've probably, churches absolutely love this text as a as a uh, foundation for church discipline. Uh, they really value church discipline and they really push it to the extent that um, they become shaming places. Right? Some churches will use this text as a, an excuse to snoop on people basically and root out their sin, find their sin, and then bring it before people in order to discipline, really in order to shame others. Other churches will take this and they'll read the part from Peter, 70 times 7, and there'll be a place of, of zero accountability where we don't really hold one another accountable at all. We just kind of let things go. And so you can think of churches that have abused this text in many ways. You can think of the church where the abused is told they have to forgive their abuser and walk right back into that relationship because, after all, we have to forgive one another or we won't be forgiven. You can think of churches where someone who is really struggling with something personally and internally is brought and shamed before the whole church because they have this besetting sin that they can't get through, that they can't work past, and so the church has brought them forward in order to shame them. I've seen this happen in both ways. I've seen churches on both ends. Churches that delight in shaming people for what they call sin, and churches where even abused persons are told, "Well, you got to forgive your abuser and go back to them," and I've seen this happen in the same church. Churches wear both of these postures because we've got our pet sins that we're kind of okay with, and then we got the sins that are really awful and evil, and we're going to shame people for. And so sometimes in the church we're guilty of doublespeak coming out of the very passage that we just read, where on the one hand we'll say, "Oh no, we got to forgive, we got to give them grace." But then when it comes to something else, we'll say, no, we got to hold their feet to the fire, and we really got to hold this person to discipline. Right. Anybody ever been in a place like that? You ever, ever hear stories from the church like that? Right. It's, it's, it's just the sad truth. And the, the very heart of the matter is that these words of Jesus don't back up either one of those postures. They don't back up either way of doing things. So, so let's go in here and see what's really happening. We're here, we're almost at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is marching toward his death. In just a few chapters, he's going to be crucified. And then at the end, he will rise again. And here we're in some of Jesus' kind of most dense teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel writer here is presenting us with all this stuff that Jesus has said. And in this part... A lot of what Jesus has said is an expansion on things he said back in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, largely the Gospel of Matthew can be, can be kind of structured that way. If you look at the way the Gospel of Matthew goes after the Sermon on the Mount, most of Jesus' teaching is an expansion of things he previously said in the Sermon on the Mount. So he's clarifying. He's bringing clarity to these, these brief statements that he made in the Sermon on the Mount. And here you see clear echoes in Matthew 18 of stuff Jesus had previously said back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. to And so that's where we find ourselves. We've come through the beginning part of Matthew 18, which we're going to talk about toward the end, where Jesus says, you got to be like little children, or you can't even come to me. you got to be childlike. And we're going to see what that has to do with this issue of accountability and forgiveness in a bit. But, but we're starting here in verse 15 where we see that under the leadership of Jesus, his church is a place of accountability. His church is a community of protecting accountability. Now, I did something weird today. If you'll notice on your notes page, I gave you little blanks on there. I know, that's crazy. I don't ever do that. (laughs) But today, um, there are little blanks on the back of your note page. And so that first line, Jesus' church is a community of protecting accountability. And that's where we jumped into these first verses, 15 to 20, where we read, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And then Jesus goes on to lay out this sort of process for confronting a brother in sin. But the very first thing I want you to notice here in verse 15 is these words against you. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. Those are incredibly important words because Those tell us that these verses are not Jesus giving us a blank check to go snooping and looking for sin in other people's lives. Too many churches have fallen into that pattern where people are just on the lookout for sin in other people's lives, something that they can call out, something that can make them feel better about themselves because, well, they're not like that person. And what Jesus makes clear right here is we're not talking about general sin. We're not talking about general sin in a person's life. We're talking about sin that affects the community and affects individuals. If your brother sins against you, this is what you do. He's talking about relationships within the church where sin is causing harm. Now, we are supposed to be a church of righteous people following Jesus, pursuing holiness, rooting out sin in our own lives, right? I am not suggesting that we are a place where just anything goes and personal and private sin is not an issue for the community. It absolutely is. But it is not something that we go snooping in people's lives to find. We are not the agents of cleansing sin in other people's lives. The Holy Spirit is the agent who cleanses people's sin. God is the one who brings to light our personal sin and works through it with the help of the community. In this case, Jesus is talking about sin that has obviously impacted a brother or sister in the church and is causing conflict and pain. Where my sin harms you is the place that we find ourselves here. And Jesus is saying, when your brother sins against you, now here's what you do. You go to that person and you confront them about it. You say, hey, um, that really hurt What you did was not like Jesus. What you did was sinful. And it hurt me. It caused me pain. And ideally, that person will say, oh, my God, I had no idea. Or, yes, I did. I hurt you. I am sorry. And they will repent and turn. Right? That's the best of all worlds, but how often does that really happen? Right? We are really good at being defensive, aren't we? <laughs> right? We are really good when confronting it, going, oh, well, but, but there was this thing going on, and there was that thing going on, and you don't understand what happened to me that morning, blah, 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 blah. And we excuse and we defend. And what Jesus is saying here is, is in an ideal world, you go to that brother or sister and you say, hey, that thing you did, it wasn't like Jesus. It was sinful, and it hurt me. And the person says you're right. No excuses. No blame shifting. No gaslighting. Just, you're right. I'm sorry. And they turn from it. That's an ideal world. Second step, though, Jesus says, if that doesn't work, if your brother or sister says, no, I don't see it. I don't see it from your point of view. Then you grab one or two other people that you both respect, who can be a mediator for you, Because oftentimes in our conflict, we need mediation. We need someone who will stand in the gap. I used to counsel couples um, when I worked for a a homeless shelter. I worked for a homeless shelter in YMCA. If you didn't know, I was a social worker when I was in seminary. So I worked a lot with homeless populations and folks in recovery and families living in shelter. And I had to mediate between a lot of couples. And one one of the things, one one good counseling technique when you're working with couples or with uh, more than one person when you're mediating is to have one party speak, and then you as the counselor, as the mediator, you can say what you heard, and then ask the other party if they heard the same thing. And almost never does the other party actually hear what you heard, right? As the uninterested party, as the non-biased counselor party sitting in the middle, you can listen to people, and you don't have all the stuff in your head and your heart between these people. Like you, You don't have all the things that are making you hear things they're not actually saying, But, you know, if you've ever been in an apartment in an argument with your significant other or even your brother or sister or your parents, right, you hear all kinds of stuff they didn't say. And they hear all kinds of stuff you didn't say. And it takes hours just to get on the same page with what you're even talking about sometimes because what you're remembering is stuff that happened 20 years ago. You're You're not sticking to just the conversation you're having right now. That's the value of a mediator, in a conflict. A mediator doesn't have that history. They don't have that background. A mediator can stand in the middle, listen to one party and say, okay, here's what I hear you saying, is that right? And then look at the other party and say, did you hear that? And the other party will say, no, I didn't hear that, but that makes sense. And ideally you get onto the same page through mediation. That's what this is about. This is not about bringing a couple other people just to back up the offended party. This is not just about bringing a couple other people who are your good buddies who don't like the person you're confronting so they can back you up in everything you said. This is about bringing people who are respected and loved, who can bring a non-biased voice to the middle of the conflict and help everyone see more clearly. That's what mediation is about. And that's ideally what happens here. So Jesus says, ideally you go to your the person who's offended you, and you say, hey, that really hurt me, that was sinful, it was wrong. And ideally, that person repents. If they don't, then you come with one or two other respected people who can mediate, who can help you understand what's going on, who can be clear, and who can be witnesses to what's going on, who can testify in case this thing gets escalated to the broader community, hey, I was there, and this is what was said, and this is what was done. Right. And they can be an unbi- unbiased voice. So let's say that doesn't work. The mediator's there. The is saying, I'm hearing you say this. Is that what you said? Yeah, that's what you said. Is that what you heard? No, that's not what I heard. And we talk it out, and at the end, there's still no resolution. So then Jesus says, now you go to the church. Now you go to the broader community. Now, there are a couple ways to understand this. One is, we're going to the community as a whole. We're going to the whole congregation. And what you have to understand is that in this world and in this time, that would not be a large congregation of hundreds of people or even a group like this necessarily. It would be a small group of people who gather in a home. I mean, you're, th- you're talking like a dozen people or so, like your small group, right? Right. This, that's the context Jesus is talking about here. Or maybe, maybe in this case, he's talking about the synagogue, the place where you gather, which are still not huge places. They're not big places where you're going to publicly shame somebody before hundreds of people. It's a small group of people who are committed to life together, committed to loving one another, and that's who you're bringing this conflict before. And you're bringing it to the wisdom of the community. You're bringing it to the love and care of the community. And so on the one hand, you could read it that way. The other hand would be to bring it to the leadership of your community. Who is leading this community? Who is helping? Who's shepherding this community? That's who we're going to next, the next level that we're bringing it to. And so then you come with the one or two others who you've gathered and the two who are in conflict, and you go before the leadership of the community and say, hey, here's what's going on. And they hear it out, and they help to mediate. And hopefully then the offender repents. And then Jesus says, if they continue not to repent, then it's time to put them out of the community. Let them be like a tax collector or a Gentile. Now, that was a pretty standard phrase for Jewish communities, right? This idea that someone would be like a tax collector or a Gentile to you. That is, they're no longer a covenant part of your community. They're outside of your community because they have done harm and damage to the community and they will not own it. And if we allow them to continue to be part of the community in their normal standing, they will bring more damage. They will cause more harm. And so this this process is not about shaming anyone. All along, the the purpose is to bring this person, this, this person who has sinned against someone else, to restoration. It's to bring them to repentance. It's to bring them back to where they started, to bring them fully into the community again as a productive part, and to cover over the offense and the harm that was caused by their actions. It's about restoration all along the way. It is never done with the intent of kicking somebody out. It's never done with the, like, you don't ever walk into this situation going, I cannot wait to get this person out of the church, right? If that's your attitude, you don't belong there, right? Never is that the attitude. Again, I told you, I was, I was working in social work, I was working with families in shelter, and oftentimes, we would have situations where we would have parents who were patently unfit to raise their children. Just, it, it was clear, And sometimes children would get taken from their parents while in shelter with us. And it was heartbreaking. And it it broke us down. And sometimes, as caseworkers, I'm just laying my heart out here on the table, okay? Please don't judge me too harshly. But there were times, as caseworkers, we would see these families, and we would go, man, I cannot wait for those children to be taken away. Because we see they're in a harmful situation, and we can't do anything about it. And we would get frustrated and angry with the state that took forever to take action on some of this stuff. Now, we didn't allow abuse, abuse to continue. We didn't allow really, truly harmful things to continue. But we saw the situation in some of these families and thought, man, that child would be so much better off in someone else's home. That was our attitude. That was our heart. It wasn't right. And then the social workers would come in from the state and they would evaluate and they would take such a very long time because the goal of the state and the goal of the social workers was always for a family to remain together. Always. And there were times we were so close to the conflict, we were so close to the dysfunction, that we could only see the dysfunction. And so we came to it with a heart of judgment. Where, not always, but oftentimes, the social worker from the state would come in only seeking unification, only seeking to keep this family together. We're gonna give them every tool and every opportunity to fix the stuff that's broken, to come to health so that these children don't have to go to some other home so they can stay with their family. That's the attitude of this restorative process. We're gonna give this person every opportunity to repent of the harm that they have done to others and to come back to health and wholeness so this community can stay unified And stay a restored community. And honestly, doesn't that process bring more glory to Jesus in the end? For the world to look in and say, okay, you don't tolerate abuse, but also you've walked toward restoration and healing for everybody involved. And so Jesus gives us a clear path toward, one, addressing abuse within our community, not allowing abuse to fester, not allowing it to ever get a stronghold, not allowing it to ever build up and grow up in, but also a process of grace that seeks healing and restoration and repentance every step of the way. That's what this process is about. When we talk about church discipline here, this is what we mean. We mean not tolerating sin that harms others within the community, not tolerating abuse within the community, but also pursuing grace and restoration at every step of the process. Unifying our community, bringing wholeness and grace to every situation. And so the church is a community of protecting accountability, and that's what this is about. When a brother has sinned against you, harmed you. This is what we do. Not just, I see something in their life that is maybe not in line with Jesus, and so I'm going to bring it before the church to shame them. It's about abuse within the church. It's about sin that harms, and bringing people to reconciliation through that. And seeing it through those lens, seeing it through that lens makes sense of Peter's question next. If this was just about general sin in people's lives and not about personal sin from one person to another, then Peter's sin wouldn't make any sense. Peter's question wouldn't make any sense. But now we come to Peter's question, then, verse 21, then Peter approached Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Now, because Peter's hearing this from Jesus, and Jesus says, when someone sins against you, here's what you do. And so Peter comes now and he says, so in that case, how many times do I forgive this person? As many as seven times? Now, you got to know that's really generous. Right? The rabbis at the time would say you forgive somebody one time, two times, three times, fourth time, you don't forgive them anymore. Right? They're confirmed in their sin. You don't, for, you don't offer forgiveness. So when Peter comes and says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, should I forgive somebody up to seven times? He thinks that's radically generous. And Jesus is like, Peter, buddy, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Right? Now, is Jesus here imagining you have a little like chalkboard and a little tally mark? right? Once you get up to 490, then you no longer forgive them. Right? I can forgive you 490 times, but that 491st time, nope, we're done. We're finished. No. Jesus is here exaggerating to the point of hyperbole to say there's no upper limit here. We forgive and we forgive and we forgive and we forgive. And 497 times we forgive. And 598 times we forgive. And 1,372 times we forgive. Why? Because we've been forgiven. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. He goes on to root this radical grace in a parable about God. Now, this is a weird parable because if you read through this parable, we didn't read it at the beginning, but if you read through this parable, the, the God figure in this parable, the king, comes off at once like really cool and then also really harsh right? And you look at this and you go, is that, is that really what God is like? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. What you have to understand when you read parables is that they're not one-to-one correlations, okay? There's not, not every character in the parable represents a specific person or thing. Not every element of the parable represents a specific purpose or a thing. The purpose of parables is to teach one overarching lesson to teach one overarching thing and to use metaphor and simile and abstract thinking to, actually it's to use concrete thinking to illustrate an abstract principle. Does that make sense, right? It's to use real life stuff to illustrate something that's kind of hard to grasp. And so the one principle that this parable is teaching us is that as followers of Jesus, we have been forgiven for far more than we could ever repay. For absolutely ridiculous sums of, of money in this case, right? Where this servant to a king owes the king 10,000 talents. Now here's how we know this is a ridiculous amount. This was more than the GDP of all of Judea. This was was more money than like the whole region brought in in taxes every single year. More than they produced economically every year. It would take you something like 120 years working hard, slaving every day to come even close to this amount of money. It's absolutely ridiculous. No servant would ever have access to this kind of money. They would never find themselves in debt this deep. If you owed the U.S. government's debt personally, that would come close to what Jesus is talking about here, right? And so this is an absolute ridiculous comparison in the first place. And so this this servant comes before the king and says, King, there's absolutely no way I could ever repay this. Could you please forgive me? Could you please have mercy on me? And the king says, yes. I mean, again, something that absolutely would not happen under any circumstances. The king says, yeah. This is an illustration of the year of Jubilee. You ever heard of the year of Jubilee? There's this principle written into the law of the Old Testament that scholars don't think was ever actually practiced, but every 50th year, the... Children of Israel, the the people of God, were supposed to forgive all debts across the board, and all land was supposed to revert to its ancestral owners. People were supposed to be able to get back their land. People were supposed to have all their debts canceled. This was the height of forgiveness for the people of God, and this was to illustrate just how radically generous God was, and it was supposed to be an illustration of how radically on the side of the oppressed that God is, and the poor. This was an opportunity for people who had been impoverished over a generation to gain back some of their wealth, some of their land, some of their ability to provide for themselves. And here Jesus is illustrating the year of Jubilee in this king's attitude toward his servant. This is what a true Jubilee forgiveness looks like. And the implication is, to all of Jesus' followers, this is what you've received. Your God has given you the year of Jubilee. Your God has wiped your slate clean. He has forgiven you for more than you could ever even imagine. You have been in debt to God beyond anything that anyone could ever repay. And yet your God has looked at you and said, all is forgiven. Your slate is clean." Now, the parable goes on, if you know this parable, and you, you, you're supposed to get really angry at the servant, right? As, as an outside observer, it really doesn't matter what the condition of your heart is. You're supposed to look at this parable and go, wait a minute, what? Because this guy now goes and finds someone who owes him a few bucks. Like they had lunch one time and the dude never repaid him kind of money. Like it's, it's a tiny, tiny amount. This guy who's been forgiven goes and finds this other person who owes him a very small sum and threatens him with debtor's prison. Threatens to have him, have him forcibly repay him for this tiny sum. The king gets wind of this and calls his servant back to him and says, you are so wicked. Like, that is, you know what I forgave you. And now, because of your actions, I'm reinstating your debt. I'm reclaiming all of your things. My grace is no longer operative in your life. Because you proved that you didn't understand it. You didn't get it. Now, this is the part where the king as the picture of God gets a little hard for us, right? Wait a minute, what? Does God really remove his grace? Does God really take his grace off of people he's given it to? Does God really reinstate the debt of sin that he'd forgiven? The answer is no. If you read the rest of the New Testament, if you read Jesus at all, you get the sense that no, that's not what's being said here. The point of application here is not what the king does to the servant. The servant. The point of application here is the heart of the servant. And so Jesus is talking to these people and he's saying, will you be that? Will you be that servant, Peter, who's stingy with grace? When Peter, you ask, should you forgive up to seven times? And Jesus says, no, 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 I say 70 times seven because you've been forgiven far more than even that. And Peter, would you be like this wicked servant? Would you be the one who's received grace but then can't issue it to other people? And at the end of the parable, we read, So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Jesus is saying, look, the heart who cannot forgive has never experienced radical forgiveness. The heart that cannot forgive does not understand the God they claim to worship and follow. The person who can't forgive has completely failed to understand the riches of God's grace that have been poured out for us in Jesus Christ. They have no idea how good God really is. And so Peter, would you really only forgive someone seven times when you've been forgiven a million times over? And to us now, the Holy Spirit says, would you really hold someone and refuse them forgiveness after the third or fourth offense when your God is daily lavishing on you mercy you cannot possibly imagine? Would you really withhold from someone? Now, someone's going to say, this will lead to abuse, Brandon. Someone's going to say, Brandon, a community like that won't hold people accountable. That's the kind of church that says to the abused, you got to forgive your abuser. No, you can't leave your husband because God said forgive him. No, you can't step away from that relationship because God said forgive And that's why it's so good that Jesus has just given us that process to say, abuse will not stand in this community. There is a process. There will be accountability. But that accountability is founded upon the principle of forgiveness and restoration. Would we really withhold forgiveness when we have been forgiven so much? Now, here's the problem Both this level of accountability and this type of forgiveness are really impossible for us. We live in a Western American society that says, stand on your rights. Stand up for your rights. If someone has wronged you, demand recompense because that's your right. If someone has harmed you, demand justice, retributive justice. Not just what you lost in the injustice, but demand even more. We live in an individualistic Western society that says the rights of the individual take precedent over everything. And here Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm calling you to lay aside your right. I'm calling you to lay aside your right to justice. I'm calling you to lay aside your right to compensation. I'm calling you to something radical in forgiving the people who wrong you and seeking restoration with them. In fact, Jesus says, I'm calling you not to stand on your rights, but I'm calling you to a radical humility, which is where Matthew 18 starts. It's always good to go back to the beginning and this is where Jesus, at the beginning of Matthew 18, he grabs a little child and he puts it on his lap. I actually think this is Peter's kid. When you read this in the Gospel of Mark, it's clear Jesus is at Peter's house. And there are children there in the town of Capernaum. And I'm pretty sure he's in Peter's house and this is one of Peter's kids. And Jesus wraps up this little kid and puts him on his knee. And he says, all of you, all of you grown ups, all of you who take yourself so seriously, all of you who think you're something because you're following the great rabbi Jesus, I want you to know that you can't even enter the kingdom of God unless you're like this little kid. Don't take yourself so seriously. Don't look so highly upon yourself because I called you, Jesus says. Instead, you're to be like this little child. Now what does he mean by that? Because a lot of us look at little kids and we think, well, they're just naive, right? They don't know the world. They're not wise and crafty like we are. The world will take advantage of them. We overprotect our children because we're so afraid of them being taken advantage of by the world. And so we helicopter and we hover over our kids and we we try to protect them from every tiny thing. Because we're afraid they're going to be taken advantage of. And yet, here Jesus is saying, if you really want to follow me, you grown ups, you got to be like these kids. I don't think Jesus is telling us to be naive, though. That would contradict God's word, which says to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. What is it about children? What is it about children that Jesus is telling us to emulate? I think, one, this is about trust. Kids trust. Kids trust implicitly. Unless they've grown up, abused, or in an environment where they could not trust. And even then, it took them a long time to learn not to trust people. If you ever meet abused children... You ever spend time with kids who have learned not to trust grown-ups? It took them a long time to get there. It took a lot of abuse to get a child to a place where they will no longer trust. Children trust implicitly. They trust the grown-ups in their lives. They trust the adults in their lives. All of us have grown up and looked back on our childhood and thought, man, I thought my parents had it all together when we realized that they didn't have it all together, right? All of us have grown up and looked back on our lives and realized that the grown-ups in our lives did not know nearly as much as we thought they did when we were little because now we're grown-ups and we recognize I'm not as wise (laughs) as I thought grown-ups would be. Children implicitly trust the grown-ups in their lives, and like children, we are to implicitly trust our good God. Jesus is calling us to a trust In God, here we can forgive not only because we've been forgiven, but because everything is in the hand of our good God who we can trust. And so I can forgive knowing that in the end, my God has the last word, my just and good and right Father. He has the last word on everything. So it's not on me to judge, it's not on me to bring judgment on these situations, it's not on me to hold everyone's feet to the fire. God is the good and right judge who will hold us all accountable in the end. And so in the moment, I can forgive. And if the day comes and we're standing before the judgment seat of God, and next to me I see someone who had abused me when I was younger and never repented of it, and God says, bless you, my child, and welcomes them into glory, I celebrate that God judged Rightly, And that this person who harmed me is now a brother or sister because my good and just God declared it so. And if God sees fit to bring the justice that I long for, I don't celebrate the harm that comes to my abuser. I'm heartbroken over what it has done to me and to that person and I leave it in the hands of my God. Children implicitly trust the grown-ups in their lives, and Jesus is calling us to a heart trust in our good God. But it's not just that children implicitly trust. It's that they assume the best of the people around them. It takes a child a long time to get jaded. It takes a child a long time to get cynical. Children assume the best of the people around them. It's part of kind of how they're wired. It takes a long time for a kid to go, I think your motives were wrong. Right? They believe the best of others. They, especially of the grown-ups in their lives. They believe the best of people and of the people in charge of them. That's part of that trust. That's part of living under the trust and love and care of grown-ups who who shepherd them well. They believe the best of others. And I think Jesus is calling us there too. We're told elsewhere, not to think highly of yourself, but to esteem others better than yourself. Assume the best of people. Assume that people have good motives. This is really hard in our political climate where everybody's demonizing everybody. It's not just that you have a different way of seeing the world. It's not just that you think the policies that you're proposing are a better way to a good and just world. It's that you're actively evil and trying to undermine democracy. It's that you are really a terrible person and you're trying to hurt everybody who doesn't think like you. This is the thinking of our society right now. You see it all the time. We see it everywhere. Our society is not about assuming the best of other people. It's about demonizing everybody who doesn't think or look or act like you. Our whole political system right now seems to be based on that one idea. And yet the Bible here and Jesus himself, they're calling us to assume the best of other people. You want to be ready to forgive people? Assume they didn't mean to hurt you. You want to be ready to forgive people? Assume that people are doing the best with what they have. And maybe what they have is not as good as what you had. Maybe what they were taught is not what you were taught. Maybe where they grew up is not where you grew up. And don't assume that where you grew up and how you grew up and what you learned is the best anyway. Assume that everybody's doing the best with what they have. And that when they harm or when they sin or when they cause trouble, It's not out of desire to destroy other people or to undermine society. It's because they're doing the best with what they've got. This takes radical humility. It takes insane amounts of humility. Humility that is entirely inaccessible apart from the work of God's Holy Spirit in us. A humility that is entirely impossible for us apart from the work of Jesus Christ, the most humble person who ever lived. We cannot live this way because the whole world will tell us you're going to get run over. You're going to get walked over. You need to stand up for yourself. You need to stand on your rights. You need to demand justice in every situation according to your definition. You need to demonize the people who don't think like you and who are different from you. But Jesus is saying that way leads only to destruction and disunity. And we see that happening in our families and in our communities and even in our churches Day after day after day. But we're called instead to a radical humility that trusts in our good and just God, assumes the best of other people, doesn't tolerate abuse but walks toward restoration, and is always ready and willing to forgive at the moment of true repentance. This is the way of Jesus for a community. This is how we remain a restorative, grace-centered, Jesus-anchored community. And we can only do it by keeping our eyes firmly focused on Jesus, our King, who humbled himself and took on flesh, walked the world with us, showed us what it was, to be righteous and holy, and then took the death that we deserve to pay the debt we could not pay, rose again after dying the death that we deserve in order to secure for us eternal life. In the most humble act that has ever been done, God himself let the world kill his body so that he could secure life for us so that his Holy Spirit could work in us the humility whose posture is to trust in God, believe the best, forgive others, and pursue an accountability that leads to restoration, not tearing down of people. And that death and resurrection of Jesus, that humble act is what we commemorate here in the bread and in the cup. In the act of communion, when we partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And as I say so often, it's not that we believe the bread and the juice become the literal body and blood of Jesus, but we also believe these are more than symbolic. That the presence of God is truly, really present in this act. In the elements of communion, when we come together and we partake of the sacrifice of Jesus that secured for us forgiveness we could never have earned and so we're going to come to the table now. And here we gather in the center, we make two lines, we come forward, you'll be served at the front, the bread and the cup. If you'd prefer, there are pre-filled cups at the table in the back. When we rise, you're welcome to go get one of those. And if today you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you to consider the radical grace that God has given you access to through Jesus. The radical love of God that he put on display in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The incredible forgiveness that is yours and the humility of our God on your behalf. I invite you to contemplate, to consider that as we partake.